Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap on Eva Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a State of the Union for European football. The elephant in the room for this podcast is Lionel Messi requesting to leave Barcelona. I mean, that's going to be a sort of seismic event of the summer in terms of the transfer window. Does this make, is this a turning point? So we've had, you know, in really the two biggest and most dominant football teams in Europe in regards to the Champions League have been Real Madrid and Barcelona in the last 10, 15 years. And their decline, is this a turning point you know, for Spanish football and for European football you know, overall? There's so many sort of similarities in regards to both of these teams' decline. I suppose the easiest one to start off with would be Real Madrid. And at the heart of it, it's what is Zinedine Zidane's philosophy? And to me, it's always been executive muddling. You know, it, if you look at it, this year they just weren't competitive in Europe from sort of start so in the group stages they were easily beaten by Paris Saint-Germain and they were beaten by Man City you know pre and post lockdown pretty easily they just didn't look likely that they were going to be competing at the top end you know quarterfinals semi-finals finals and I think there was a certain element that this year was where Zinedine Zidane really wanted to prove that he could win the league you know, for him, it's the you know, thirty-eight game season grind, and defeating Barcelona was was quite important. And there's also the element of you know the if you take the Netflix, you know the Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, the Last Dance. It was literally he at some point he knows that he's going to have to rebuild this team. You know, you've you know you've lost Ronaldo, but that was something that was quite. Because he had declined. Because by the end of his spell at Real Madrid, he was just basically a sort of stereotypical number nine. Yes, he could sometimes drift out to the left, but for the most part, it was headers, tap-ins, overhead kicks, penalties, free kicks. You know, he wasn't the focal part of the team in the same way that maybe you would say for Lionel Messi in the last sort of couple of years, when you've just about started seeing the gentle decline phase of Messi's career. So actually, to be fair, getting rid of Zidane, of Cristiano Ronaldo, was actually, you got a decent transfer fee. It wasn't painful. It wasn't something that had become protracted. It was a little bit of a surprise at the time, but people knew that what you know, sooner or later, they were going to have to move on. There was never going to be a position where Cristiano Ronaldo like Raul would sort of for a couple of years become a sort of a good third striker you know someone that you could use off the bench it was always going to be he was going to be a star preferably at Real Madrid but if that wasn't going to happen if they weren't going to you know put him as a centre point he'd find it somewhere else and so for me, there is a I think there's a comfort for Zidane with you know keeping the veteran squad. So that's you know Ramos, Modric, Cruz, Benzema, and this you know this summer because Real Madrid 
you know, seemingly lack the money for Galactico signings that he can then muddle on for another year. I mean, if you look at the signings they made last year, the two primary signings were Hazard and Luka Jovic. And with Jovic, it, I felt at the time that it was just... He'd gone from you know, one really good season with you know, Eintracht Frankfurt, but this that was in the Europa League, to suddenly being the you know the the head of you know someone the presumptive heir to effectively both Benzema and Ronaldo's role you know and obviously you've got the history of the you know the Real Madrid main striker so you know you talk about Raúl and then back in the day you know all the the great players of the fifties and sixties all the great attackers I felt it was still you know it was really a step too far and he just looked a little bit out of his depth there was a couple of instances where it was just sort of a young player that just really caught in the headlights and then you had Eden Hazard who was really the first sort of subtle move that you know things were going to change and was this a you know there was a lot of focus on was this you know Zinedine Zidane starting to you know make some subtle changes and in the end you know Hazard turned up you know overweight and unfit picked up some injuries and never really got going and so I think there's almost a, a part an element that again Zinedine Zidane can have another comfort year another year with this you know rapidly aging squad and the thing is I think one of the elements you have to worry about is is that You've had it. It's been very stop start. You've had the sort of long period of lockdown, and you've had to ramp it up. Lots of games very cl- close together, especially in the heat in Spain. You then had to go out and play the remainder of the European games. So you've got a very small off season, a very much a truncated pre season, and you're thinking that's you know the possibilities that then you're so and you're not making a huge amount of signings. That's going to be a hell of a lot of strain. On you know Benzema, Modric, those sort of players who you know they're not getting any younger. But the real question is, is that once you lose those players, those players who were already you know in situ, already knew their roles inside out, what's going to happen when Zidane has to then have an actual a whole new philosophy, one that isn't going to isn't going to be wrote something that is literally is going to have to be. His style of play, his type of signings, he's really, you know, he's absolutely going to be the, you know, master and commander of the new, the next great Real Madrid team. And it's a real question mark over what is that team? Is it going to be a pressing team? Is it going to be a veteran team? Is it going to be lots of younger players? Is it, you know, because he's never been, I mean, I was reading an interesting article a few weeks ago that seemed to basically say that, Zidane was never really much into pressing, you know, when he played his you know, own you know playing career, and there hasn't been really much hints that that's something that he was going to look to move into. So it's a real question mark because I've always thought, to a certain extent, that you know, Zidane's philosophy was, you know, really executive muddling. <laughs> He was going much going to be the figurehead. He'd you know occasionally make points. You know, he'd be quite good with his subs, but for the most part, he was just keeping the outfit ticking over. You know, keep on getting them to winning. You know, Euro, you know, European tour, you know, Europe, Champions League, and you know if on occasion you could pick up the league, that would also mean something to him. And that the Real Madrid board were quite happy to basically, as long as they were winning, 
you know, Champions League, as long as they weren't competitive in the league. You know, Zidane's a fantastic figurehead in terms of marketing, in terms of what he means to the global Real Madrid fan base and the local fan base. They weren't going to rock the boat. Whereby Barcelona, it's far more complicated. It's far more a failure across the entire club. You've had the failure of La Misa. So in other words, yeah, they're, they're still developing good talent, but you know they weren't utilising that talent. And really, at the time, they were using the classic shortcut. What they were doing is, it was almost as if, okay, we, we the t- first team is in a win-now situation, so we, we can't really, in any meaningful position, in other words, centre-mid, striker, wingers, well, we can't really you know, blood any youngsters yeah, outside of the occasional superstar. So Ansu Fati is probably your best example. So in the end, what they've done is, okay, what we'll do is we'll use the reputation of La Misa for excellence and Barcelona as a way of basically pumping up the value of these players and then selling them on for you know a decent money. So you know, five, six, seven, ten million euros here and there as a way of basically just keeping the kitty you know, you know stocked up with subs. And so you've had a situation where you know Andre Nana, although that technically speaking was a disciplinary issue, but you've lost him. You had a situation with with a Dima Traore, who's now shown you know, all the sort of talent that you know that he's shown at Wolves. And to a lesser extent, you've had the and you had Delafeu, who they basically loaned out, they sold, and he kind of went round the houses, ended up at AC Milan, and then. Barcelona bought him back, played him a tiny little bit, D- didn't really find a role for him. They didn't say, well, okay, we're going to use you as a bench player or as a fourth attacker who can maybe play 15, 20 games, you know, filling in for everyone, and then go to the bench, and then eventually you know, sold him again. And it was all very messy. And you had this whole issue of short-term thoughtless signings, when they signed you know, a declining Arturo Vidal, when they got Paulinho on back on loan. And it was all of these kind of strange signings. And I think in the end what happened was is that they became so obsessed with this, the idea of this sort of one last European Cup. So then there was Bartomeu ended up sort of working towards Messi. And really, I suppose the question is over the last maybe sort of two or three years is really could Barcelona have been successful with Messi? And I think there are different ways of looking at it. The idea of was he ever was Lionel Messi ever non political? I don't think so. I there was always that tacit assertion that he wanted to be playing with his mates, that there were people that he wanted to play with and people that he didn't. And Antoine Griezmann wasn't part of the, you know, the, the, the mates bubble. And yeah, there are comparisons you can add with, with Cristiano Ronaldo in that sense of being the, the big dog. There's always that famous story of when Zlatan Ibrahimovic was, you know, joined Barcelona. And the idea was is that if you put Ibrahimovic, if you put Messi and the genius of Pep Guardiola and all the other players, so Iniesta, Xavi, Puskets and all the rest, that you'd have just this superstar outfit. But the problem was is that you know Zlatan was never going to fit into the 
kind of the ethos of Barcelona. He's always far too individualistic, and I respect him for that. And there was the famous time when you know they're on the bus, and Lionel Messi from the back of the bus texts Pep Guardiola saying, "Don't you love me anymore?" Basically, the idea was, "Why have you signed Zlatan?" You know, it's that kind of aesthetic to it. Mm. And I think the thing is that while Messi was part of this golden generation. You know, the, from La Maisa to you know, Busquets, PK, Xavi, Iniesta, and even Cesc Fabregas. Primarily, that was Spain's golden generation. But he was global in a way that those other players weren't. And in the end, he became synonymous with the club in its new position as a behemoth global super. In other words, Barcelona were always a huge club. But You'd had, you know, they'd only won one European Cup, that's 1992. And you have Rijkaard, but that was under, you know, Ronaldinho, Deco, Samuel Etu. But they were just one of many other clubs. So you, at that time, you'd still say, well, AC Milan, you had. Real Madrid had, those outfits had won far more European Cups. And even if you look at the sort of late 90s, you'd had Bayern getting through to finals, they won it, you'd even have Valencia getting to a couple of finals, they were just one of many outfits, but once, what what Messi did was, was to take them not just from a club that, you know, on its, when things went right, could win the European Cup, to one that expected to win it two, three, four, five, six times, is almost a little bit like, you know, sort of Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. Yes, the New England Patriots had got to Super Bowls in the 80s and the 90s, but what the difference was is that Tom Brady was the reason why they went to you know, year after year. In other words, you could just ink them in to the AFC Championship game. They would be there or thereabouts. And whoever they'd lose to would be you know, effectively the AFC's you know, entrant into the Super Bowl. You know, with Ronaldo, Real Madrid was always a behemoth already. They'd already had the success of the 50s, the early 60s, and then you'd have the sort of golden period at the end of the 90s when they'd, you know, and with Casillas, with Raul, where they re-established themselves as a team that could win multiple European Cups all back-to-back. And really what Ronaldo did was re-establish that and strengthen it, whereby Lionel Messi actually... concretely made Barcelona into that football club. Which is why there's so much more emotion about the idea of Messi leaving. The point was is that effectively Real Madrid, the only way that the, the situation that Real Madrid would have worked for Cristiano Ronaldo is if the club had effectively become a living mausoleum for the genius of Cristiano Ronaldo. He just constantly stayed in the number nine role, guaranteed to get 50 starts a year and that Everything around the, the club's offensive lineup would be designed entirely to make sure that Cristiano gets 30, 40 plus goals a season. And the reality was is that Real Madrid weren't willing to build around that. They weren't willing to basically the, the intuition that Ronaldo was bigger than the club. That was unacceptable to the fans, to the ownership. They weren't willing to leave. To, they weren't willing to accept 
a situation where the idea was once Ronaldo left football, that Real Madrid would be left bereft. So in other words, there was, you know, the fans. The point was is that one of the things people, when Ronaldo left, everyone's like, well, why aren't you, why aren't Real Madrid fans showing more, why weren't they more sad? Why weren't they more appreciative? And the point is, is that that's not what Real Madrid stand for. Real Madrid stand for excellence. You know, the idea is if you don't win the European Cup, your season has pretty much been a failure. And that you could even sack a manager for winning the European Cup if you were deemed it not winning it in a Real Madrid-esque way. So the point was is that they were quite happy to get the money from Juventus and he was quite happy to join a league where he was going to be far more appreciated. And the fact he was able to maintain the basic numbers while the inevitable you know, decline you know, sets in. And that might be a similar sort of process by which, you know, the idea of Messi, you know, reuniting with Pep at Man City in the Premier League. That the Premier League is going to be so happy to see Lionel Messi, that Man City fans will be so happy. There'll be so much news and so much content sort of created. When really, I suppose the problem for Barcelona is, is that, well, if you look at it... Rhythms right now, top level European football is more synchronized. It's dependent on pressing. It's you know everyone working as a, as a collective unit. So in other words, if you look at Liverpool, where their fantastic success was, is that you had Firmino, Mane, Salah. And they all work as one collective unit. They all chip in. They all do the running. They all do some of the creativity. They do some of the goal scoring. And, you know, really most of the, you know, creative work in the box is done by the front three. You know, most of the creativity comes from the fullbacks who are completely in sync on either side of the pitch. And therefore the remaining sort of five outfield players, for the most part, are therefore doing the donkey work, making sure that you're doing the pressing, getting the ball back, moving the ball quickly enough to the front three or to the wide players to then bring everything in. And it's a sort of similar situation really with sort of you know, Bayern Munich is that you have this fantastic power wonder striker in you know, Lewandowski and therefore everything is then sort of built around the attacking players, getting the ball wide, getting the ball into the right areas so that then you know, you've got the runners, you've got... It is very much... The teams that right now are very successful have a philosophy and it's a very and it's not a situation where you might say, let's say in the 80s where you had, OK, we'll have the one shining light player. So a Maradona or you know, for Tottenham, let's say Glenn Hoddle, and then we'll sort of build around those and we're, you're working towards that player. That's no longer really in vogue. And so the problem was is that there was this whole issue of how do you reconstitute Messi into a scheme that can provide success in Europe? Because you had all of these away beatings. You know, the away beatings at PSG. Yes, they were able to get it back at the new camp, but the then but the, the the rot had set in. They were not successful away from home. They got hammered at Anfield, and really eventually the the away beatings turned into a home beating, and that's where it culminates in the you know, eight two demolition by by Bayern. The point is that the numbers are superficially acceptable, exceptional, 
But the problem was he was unable to mesh with Griezmann, you know, Dembele, Coutinho. And it's, you know, when you take the Coutinho signing, I sort of compare it, and you can compare and contrast to their signing of Fabregas a few years ago. It was a sign. It was a solid signing on paper, but there was a, a lack of coherence, a lack of ideology to it. The point was is that Barcelona re-signed Cesc Fabregas because he was available. He was Spanish. They had lost him to Arsenal, and yeah, there was a little bit of bruised, na- yeah, bruised national and bruised club pride involved. The idea of we want to get this guy back. In a in a Barcelona shirt because he you know, came through in a Meister. He was you know the one that got away, but when they got him, they had absolutely no idea where to play him. So at one point he was playing as a sort of a false nine. He played a bit as a winger. He played a bit as a sort of. They just he didn't do badly there, but they just didn't have a role for him other than utility attacker. Oh well, oh someone's suspended. I oh, will we'll put Sesk in. Oh okay, well and someone needs a rest. We'll put Sesk in, and it just didn't really work out. And it was a, a sort of you know with you know Coutinho. It was like okay, he's done fantastically well in the Premier League. He's you know a good attacking player. You know, he's a good passer, good shot, good free kick, and you know he you know wants to join Barcelona. That's you could see, okay, well, then he'd linked up well with Suarez when they played. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Oh, he'll be the replacement for Xavi. But they're not the same player. They don't... It wasn't going to be a sort of plug-in situation. Okay, Xavi's gone. We will then put in Felipe Coutinho. He'd never done that role in, you know, then to, and, and replacement almost for Iniesta as well. But it just wasn't really going to work out in that manner. The clear point is, is that Messi can't, isn't going to press. I You think of how much football he's played. You're talking about hundreds and hundreds of games. Each season, playing week after week after week. You know, always going deep into the Champions League. Always going deep in international tournaments. You know, there's just not going to be the legs there. And top-level European football doesn't allow you to sit there and say, OK, you can have one player who just does their attacking bit. In other words, he's not going to press, he's not going to tackle, he's not going to get the ball back. Everybody else, therefore, has to work within that's kind of his sphere of influence so that, you know, effectively your midfield will have to work twice as hard to cover, your attacking players will have to be very young and very fit to do that, or you'd have to completely change your style of play. You'd almost have to go to quite a defensive team with maybe a couple of very fast attackers either side of Messi, and so that effectively you were on the break, and he'd be there, and he'd be kind of the or, you know the conductor. It it just doesn't feel like a particularly likely way to succeed. In other words, what you will get is what what you know they've had this season is that he's no longer the sort of player that when you're drawing one all in the last couple of minutes will somehow come just something out of nothing. You know, there will be some games where he just won't be able to do it. It's not a tap anymore. He will still do brilliant things, but just not in a way that he can single-handedly. Like, I think the situation I remember following the second leg at the semi-final against Liverpool. Once you realise that Liverpool, the crowd were up for it, the 
team were up for it. Barcelona weren't defending particularly well. You thought, okay, all it needs is Lionel Messi to do something wonderful and get the away goal. And it just wasn't there. Whereby maybe a few years ago, he'd done something amazing. He'd done an amazing run, gone past four or five players, set one of the attackers through. Away goal probably would have been the end of Liverpool. So it now leads to a huge question. You know, with both of these teams, neither one of which in this sort of very short off season looks like they're going to make the sort of huge amounts of signings. It's whether, you know, the real question for Barcelona is does this become a a saga? Is this something that's gonna last the entire summer? Because he's obviously today, you know, yesterday he didn't turn up for the club medical to the start of the pre season. So so is it gonna be a situation where they simply let him go? so that they can then move on, make the signings. But the problem is is that the quicker you get rid of him, the less likely you are to get any money back. And I suppose if we're looking now at a situation where maybe for the next sort of two or three years, it's not looking likely that either Real or Barca are going to be sort of competing at the top level. And this will be the first time that really that Spain won't have someone that we're expecting to get to a semi-final, at least. So, the real question is, is that, does Sevilla winning the, the Europa League, it, does that matter? Is that something that's important for, you know, Spanish football? Does it say that there's going to be the, a possibility that them, or maybe Atletico Madrid, will be able to sort of compete? Or is it really just a situation that Sevilla are basically the... The personification of the Europa League. A situation where the club knows how to win it, has a unique selling point of we win Europa League. In other words, we will guarantee you European success, cups, you you know, you'll get to play in the European Super Cup, and there's always the possibility you'll end up in the Champions League more often than not. But if you don't get there, happy days, if we finish fifth, no worries, we'll just win the Europa League. And really, what does that mean for, I suppose, the, the Europa League? Is it a stepping point to the Champions League? So if you take this year's Europa League final, Sevilla versus Inter Milan, there was one club that was absolutely desperate to compete in the Champions League. Who thinks that it's history, it's size, it's the ability to sign players, that that's where they should be. They should be competing with Juventus domestically, and they should be competing for you know, at least the quarterfinal level and beyond in the Champions League. And the outfit that did win the final was the one that realistically we're probably not going to be able to compete with Barca and Real. Even in their weakened state, we're not going to be able to. The budgets, the way how we do things is we basically sign these you know, unheralded players, boost their value, and we sell them on for a profit rinse and repeat and in the process win win the Europa League so I suppose there was also people were sort of you know the the final had this the the Champions League final had this very much like ah you have the old money of Bayern Munich and the new money of PSG and so as a result does this mean that it's another example of you know, sort of stratification. Now, for me personally, yes, we are in an age of stratification, but I don't think it's got quite 
that bad. I mean, if you look at it, you know, you had a situation where Lyon reached the semi-finals, so you had two French teams in the semi-finals, and that was the one, you know, major European league which cancelled their season early. And the fact that, you know, Lyon hadn't qualified for Europe, they were literally, you know, sixth, seventh, weren't really going anywhere, you know, domestically. They were slightly improving, but they were still a bit of a lost season. You had a situation where Shakhtar Donetsk reached the Europa League semi-finals. You had a situation where Seville knocked out Man United and Wolves. Both teams that had more profile, who were considered more got on the way up. You know, there's still room for medium sighted. I and mean, if you look at the Shakhtar team, they still had, you know, they had Conor Palanca, and he was, you know, promising five or six, seven years ago. You had some Brazilians, but none of them were, con- were you know, the, the ilk when you had, they had Fernando, when they had Fernandinho, William, those sort of players. And yet they were still able to, you know, beat bigger sides, and yet, you know, and okay, they were absolutely annihilated by Inter Milan, but even getting that far, you know, suggests that we're not at the outright stage of pure stratification where effectively the upper ends of both major European club tournaments are effectively the European Super League, you know, de facto. So I think at this stage it's probably interesting to sort of look at each major European league. So we'll start off with Germany. I mean, you had this fantastic situation where Bayern have had this amazing end to the season. But I think what people forgot was is that, yeah, they won 28 out of their last 29 games. But to an extent, they actually pretty much had to win out. You know, they were sort of seventh when they got rid of, you know, Kovac. Yeah, and that was a traumatic sacking for them. Because you also had changes at the top of the organisation. You know, Rumanija you know, stepping down. The fact that you were going to have a new generation, you know, Oliver Kahn coming in. The idea of you know sacking a popular ex-player who was considered an up-and-coming manager, and the fact that there was no replacement, you know, really it was it was fairly traumatic for them, and this was they probably at that point thought, is this going to be the year when you know a Leipzig or a Dortmund finally overtake us and we you know we lose the you know run of Bundesliga's triumphs, and are we actually moving back? So you, your problem was you had. You know, Coutinho on loan, you have Perisic on loan, you know, obviously Lewandowski is ageing, you had question marks over Boateng, Neuer, even Thomas Müller to a certain extent, was whether their window for you know competing had closed. And the point was is that Hansi Flick, the idea was, okay, he's, you know, a coach, he's got some interesting ideas, he, he'll be able to, the next few weeks hopefully steady the ship, get them at least into the top four so that you can at least guarantee Champions League football next season and that if the results don't pick up, we'll then have to get in a top-level manager. But there was no succession. There was no plan. And the point was is that they, you know, Flick started doing so well. They thought, okay, well, we can put this decision off to January, give us some more time to get a top-level replacement. Which then turned into, actually, we'll give them to the end of the season. We'll see how far this can go. To the point where you've now reached, well, actually, 
this guy could be the Bayern Munich manager for the next five, ten, you know, five, ten years. You know, there's a lot of promising. He has some very interesting ideas tactically, and he's very much his own man. It's not the sort of classic situation where, where he's sort of Roberto Di, Roberto Di Matteo'd it. He's not just rocked up there, and you know found some surly you know veterans, and sort of brought them all together in a you know us against the world kind of situation. He's definitely got his own ideas with the transfer market, the way how they play football. And he's you know, really revitalised a lot of the players there. I mean, you think about it, you've got RB Leipzig who've, made, who've finally reached that next step in, you know, reaching the Champions League semi-finals in beating Spurs, who were at that point, you know, regular Champions League, had reached the final the year before. And in beating Atletico at the time were considered, you know, you know, dark horses to, you know, you know, get to the final, even win the competition. And you've got Dortmund with with Irving Haaland. There, there's a credible challenges. And I suppose the question marks over, you know, with RB Leipzig is really how will they, you know, cope without Werner? And when next? Are they going to just buy another talented youngster and try and just sort of build them up or are they going to go for an experience or you know a marquee signing there, there are definite question marks over is it going to be a situation where they're going to prefer you know maybe success in the champions league over trying to basically you know overtake you know Bayern Munich which is really you know an Everest kind of situation especially over you know 34 games I suppose there's a question mark over Dortmund whether they have the sort of mentality to match Bayern domestically. Whether there's a sort of an overfocus on playing great football as opposed to getting the results. And that was kind of amplified really with, you know, Lucien Favre's style of football. At times, even with the restart, they when they were good, they were fantastic, but there was an inconsistent there was always a sense that teams might nick a draw or might, you know, beat them all you know if they'd had an off day or if they you know were able to be sort of held you know for 50 60 17 minutes whether they'd run out of ideas or whether they'd go forward and they weren't really you know, strong enough defensively at the back so you know the question mark is you know is signing thomas munier assigning to take them to the next level or is it to sort of maintain style now with spain there's this is the window of opportunity for Atletico Madrid, you know, really to break into the top two and compete for the title. You know, you've got a further year of development for Xiao Feliz, but there's also that question mark over, you know, can you rely on Alvaro Morata to, you know, lead you to the title, to be the main striker? You know, how much money is going to be available? They spent a, you know, quite a bit of money, and some of those signings haven't really worked out. I think Diego Costa is your classic example, who's taken a huge amount of the the wage bill. Will they be able to get rid of him in a coronavirus summer? You know, you're also relying on players like you know Trippy. You still got the you know, Coke, Sal Niguez, you know, Jan Black in goal. Yeah, and they've managed to you know. To broadly replace the you know the back four from the traditional you know the the Godins, so <sighs> there was you know an element you know the result over Liverpool in the Champions League there was some changes you know with of style 
there was still some of the old school you know, toughness that you expect from a you know, Cholo Simeone team. But there was also, you know, some elements of style and a more sort of pleasing brand of, of attack. And there was some excellent post-lockdown form. I mean, I suppose the question mark is, is that the disappointing loss to RB Leipzig, but was that a, a function of a one-off cup game where they'd had some problems with some of their players coming down with coronavirus in the, in the build-up to the game? I mean, there's a question, you know, I mean, I've sort of hinted it earlier, you know, with, with Sevilla, because they've been revitalised under Monchi and Lopetegui. I mean, could they compete? I mean, I suppose it depends on how they fare in the Champions League. I suppose if it's a situation where they're bottom of the group and they're not going to qualify for the Europa League, because there's always that you know, suspicion that if you tell Seville you have a choice between going for the Europa League, which they know they can win because they have the institutional experience, or do you junk the Europa League and make it a once-in-a-generation attempt at the at the league. If there's a situation where you know both Real and Barca you know are struggling and Atletico don't you know don't establish a 10-15 point gap, what would they choose to do? You know, is there going to be another you know, major ins and outs with them? Are they going to do what the, the classic Monchi thing to sell some players? Are they going to lose some of the better players from the you know, Europa League run? Or are they going to try and keep them for you know, just one more season? And the question marks over money, not having any you know, fans in the ground. I mean, I think there's an expectation that, you know, Real Madrid should succeed domestically. I don't think they're going to do particularly well in Europe with the current squad they have. But domestically, I think with their experience they have, and if Hazard has a good year, they should be there or thereabouts. And really, with Barcelona under Koeman, until you make that decision with you know, Messi, whether you get a fee, I think if you look at it, if Griezmann steps up, because you won't have Suarez, you won't have Messi... If Dembele gets his head straight and performing, you know, Atsu Fati makes another step up. You know, he, there, there, and if you maybe bring in a Latour and Martinez to play, there is a lot of talent. And if they can bring in some midfielders, you know, you've got Frankie De Jong, you've got some experience, you've got a fantastic goalkeeper in Testergen. It might well be that actually. It will even make or break them. I know that's a fairly a fairly obvious thing to really point out, but I could see a situation where if they start the season well, that actually, and because you won't have fans, so you won't have huge amounts of protest um, regarding, you know, there won't be a situation where you get the white hankies at the new camp. Which I think might be beneficial, and that really to give people a sort of a period of mourning before you know, and then judging the team on its merits in the sort of post messy world. But at the same time, you know, that's a huge amount of change, and you've got a new manager who basically knows that you know the potentiality is there's going to be likely next summer there's going to be a presidential election, and if the incumbents lose. The challenger's already said, 
Coleman won't be the manager. I'll bring Xavi back. So there's really you know a huge amount of you know question marks as to and if you know, Coleman doesn't start the season particularly well, whether he'd just become a lame duck very quickly. You know, if you then if you then move on to Italy, uh, last season was quite fascinating uh, I, with regards to Italy because you had the rise at various points of Atalanta, Lazio, and Inter, and there's a question mark over you know Andrew Pirlo, which I'll probably go into a little bit detail further on into the in the podcast. But you've got a question mark over clear out. You know how will Ronaldo fare with the limited off season, and you know eventually it's another. Another year in the legs of you know, Ronaldo. I suppose the, the, the key questions are, is do you think Atalanta will be strip-mined? And how they react to that. And also, you know, with, I think, Inter Milan's run to the, the Europa League final, I think that stabilised Antonio Conte in both you know, politically and in terms of his own sort of mental outlook. I think had they, let's say, got knocked out in the quarters... I could imagine a situation where he would have walked out, but I think, you know, in terms of battering Shakhtar Donetsk 5-0 in the semis and being a little bit unlike unlucky in the final, I think there's enough talent there. And I think the possibilities of him getting some of the players he wants, I think he's likely to stick around at least you know, to the start of the season. If there is any problems or you know, bad start season, I, I think he'll walk. But there's definitely, if you look at the, the form Lukaku shown in Italy domestically, and you know, I, I, there's a possibility that they compete in the Champions League, but I don't imagine it will be as draining as getting to the final of the Europa League. And I think that did have an impact in you know, some of the games where they really dropped off. I mean, Sassuolo would be a classic example where they really should have won that game and somehow found a way to, to enter it up. And I think there's a question mark over Lazio, whether they can strengthen, whether they can compete at home and in Europe. There's so there's a sense that I think whether I think with the clear out potential potentially happening at Juventus, whether they lose that depth and that level of experience that has got them through this season. So I think that's where Juventus could well be quite vulnerable. And that if one or even all three of them, these teams can compete over the full season. So in other words, really for first half of the season, Inter were, you know, led the running. You then had a period where Lazio up until really the restart. And then at the back end of it, and it was probably a little bit too late, Atalanta. But at no point was there one of these outfits able to compete really over the full stretch of 38 games. But if one of them was to, and if, you know, and obviously you know, with Pirlo, he's inexperienced, that there is a every chance this year that next season that you have a new title winner in Italy. Uh, and with France, you know, I suppose the question mark is, is, you know, who will Leon lose? And whether European football, the lack of it, and the potential lack of, there won't be a... French League Cup, so really all Leon have is the League Games and the um, French Cup. Could they end up with a situation where PSG are going to be absolutely desperate to get back to the Champions League to win it? 
mean, obviously, the question marks over Ren being probably too weak and Marseille being in chaos. I think it really is kind of Leon or bust in terms of you know, competing. But whether they lose some of their players, whether they can get rid of some of the poor players that they signed you know, with their... Nino Panambuco, as in his first season as director of football. There's reason, you know, obviously with you know, Leon getting to the semi-finals, there's reason for hope in that regards. And I'll briefly touch on English football. This is mainly, you know, a discussion about European football. But you've obviously got the, the top, which is currently at the moment Man City, who are retooling after a sort of down season, and you have Liverpool, who I think have been a bit arrogant in not really making much of an attempt to sign anyone. And I think if you look at the charity shield yesterday, there was just this first sort of subtle hints that I think they might struggle out of the gate. Now, obviously, the potentiality, they're still a fantastic team. They do have some depth, some younger players, but whether there's going to be that competition and now that you've had a situation where they've won the league and all of that longing is gone and they've also won the Champions League a couple of seasons ago, it's what's next for that outfit? Whereby, you know, you're having a huge amount of money being poured into Chelsea with the expectation of, you know, eventually, you know, they're not spending all that money to finish just above the team finishing fourth. It's we're expecting you to compete for the title this year. And then you've had really a whole bunch of teams. You know, Arsenal have got better. There are question marks over their depth, but Mikel Arteta is moving them in, in the right direction. You've then had Leicester, Sheffield United, Wolves. You know, you've got Tottenham making some interesting signings, you know, quite canny signings. And the question mark over what will, in the second you know year of Jose, what will he do where where will they go can they keep fit can Kane's will Kane be the front man for the vast majority of the season will they get tired out by the Europa League they're, they're, so there's really you know you're, you're going almost as deep as sort of seven for eighth there is you know a competition really there's people trying to break into the top two and there's people trying to break into the the top seven and that's it. And it was just different teams. You know, the fantastic moves that, you know, the football that Chris Wilder played and the interesting football that he played. You had the situation where Leicester probably should have qualified for the Champions League. They were a bit unlucky with injuries. But, you know, they, they sold Chilwell. That would be a loss. But I think the money they got for him, he, he's replaceable in the same way that they were able to replace Harry Maguire without too many problems. So I think, again, there is reason to be you know, positive that English football, yes, the top two, top three, Liverpool are a huge club, always have been for you know, basically the last 50 years, Man City have a huge amount of money, Chelsea have a huge amount of money, but you know, you've still got teams like Spurs, Wolves, Sheffield, United, Leicester, who are who are trying different things in order to compete. You know, which is encouraging. So I suppose, you know, I sort of touched on this a little bit earlier. The idea that you really have these, you know, huge, you know, sort of four-star and five-star European teams. Now, for me, I did this in a previous podcast a, a couple of years ago. 
was really the best probably way of looking at, at football teams is in terms of like European football is how many stars they have. Now really a five star team is your Barca's and your Reals. They're just global outfits. They have just huge amounts of money, huge stadiums, huge you know long and storied histories, great players, huge wage bills, you know, the ability to throw you know large amounts of money at the youth system. And then you've got kind of your four-star teams, you know, your Bayern Munich, who aren't don't quite have the ability to win four or five Champions Leagues in a row, but they are dominant at their you know, domestic level. You know, PSG are a four-star team, Juventus are, and then you kind of get your your sort of three-star teams, which you know, your Dortmunds, you know, your Tottenham's, and you can lose a star, you can go up a star, but. Broadly speaking, at the moment, you know, there's a question mark over whether Bayern Munich and Liverpool could be five-star outfits, but is that there was this fear that football was just becoming a was stratification that simply you the four-star teams were always going to be four stars, the five-star teams were, and nobody else was really going to be able to break that. That that was really a glass ceiling. So I suppose if you look at it. And I've sort of entitled this part of the podcast really Revenge of the Middle Class. Because what links the clubs that have been recently successful in Europe? Let's say the last couple of seasons. So you have your, your, kind of your tier one outfits. So that's Bayern Munich and that's Liverpool. And they're the last two winners of the Champions League. Both of them have good youth development. So you've got Trent, you know, Alfonso Davis, key signings, you know, Virgil, Nabry, Goretzka. World-class coaching, flick, clop, infinite resources, history of success, and you know, attacking coordinated football. They're very, they're similar clubs, and I suppose if you had another tier one club, really, you say borderline would be Chelsea. And again, it's good youth development. You know, Mason Mount, Callum Hudson Odoi, Loftus Cheek. You know, key signings. You know, they spent money on Pusilic, Kovacevic, you know, previously Kazard, Kepel, that Kepel signing hasn't worked out. I mean, you could say top-level coaching in the sense that in the last couple of seasons, Sarri's won Serie A, he's won the Europa League, he took Napoli into the Champions League and competing record amount of points you know, in Serie A. And they've got a successful recent history and they've got large resources with Roman Abramovich. And then you've got PSG and... You know, again, huge amount of money spent on star players. You've got Di Maria, Mbappe, Neymar. You know, they've had, you know, they've spent money on their youth system, you know, Presnel Kimbembe. But really, what you have is is that they've, they've really taken on a more middle-class way of getting success. In other words, they've done all of the big club things that so your four or five-star outfits would do. So they brought, you know, real star players. They had, you know, they tried to get, you know, high-profile managers. So, you know, Laurent Blanc, Carlo Ancelotti. And it didn't really work. They were a bit flimsy. So they'd get all the way to maybe the quarterfinals. And then they would flame out fairly spectacularly. And so eventually, you know, they got improved holistic coaching from Tuchel. So he's finally got, you know, Neymar to really actually take on the project. Because the point is, Neymar signed up to the project, but really 
didn't have his heart into it. In other words, he basically wanted to win a Champions League on his own so that he could get you know, win the Ballon d'Or. And that he could really leave... You know, in other words, when he was brilliant at Barcelona, he was part of the band. And that was Suarez and Messi. And as a band, they worked brilliantly well. But he wanted the solo career. He wanted to prove that actually he wasn't just one part of it, he could be the entire, he could be the brand in of itself. And taking a, a team from France to that level, I could see where that would attract him and the, you know, the huge amounts of money that you know you get from endorsements and all the rest of it. But obviously, when you turn up to the French League and it's a lower league, there was some drop-off. And I think this was the first year you got some proper actual full buy-in from him that actually... He was going to have to really try harder. And I think he was a bit unlucky in the back end of the tournament that he just missed a few chances. But what can you do? You've had the you know, huge layoff in regards to the French League being cancelled. You had lockdown. But the point is, is that part of the reason why you know PSG did well this year was your complimentary players. They needed Chupa Motting, who you know, hadn't you know, basically spent a few years on the bench at Stoke coming off the bench to you know to score the winner against yeah, Atalanta in in the quarterfinals. You know, you've had and Herrera. You 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 had Di Maria being this sort of facilitator that helped, you know, Mbappe and Neymar hit the top level. The point was they nearly lost to Atalanta. You could argue that, you know, Atalanta losing their best player, Joseph Ilicic, who wasn't available. We don't hundred percent know why, but so they took a tier one approach to get there and a tier two to really make the step up into not just the courses, but winning a quarter, winning a semi and, you know, and being competitive in the final. And then you've really got the sort of tier two teams. So you're talking RB Leipzig, Atalanta, Seville, Spurs, and all of them seem to have sort of a long-term plan for Spurs. It was buying from intermediate clubs, your Ajax, picked up Ericsson, Alderweireld, Vertonghen, Southampton, you know, in terms of picking up, you know, out of the world. And Victor Wanyama, you had youth team players, Winks and Kane, you had coaching, you know, that, you know, excellent coaching from, you know, Maurizio Pochettino. And they kept the squad together. There was a, an attractive style of football that really come. I mean, although the, the project fell apart, it's dying kind of dying star moment was still getting to the Champions League final. And, you know, with Seville, with the return of Monchi, high turnover of players, and its use of sort of second-level coaches. You know, Wande Ramos, Unai Emery, uh, George Sampoli. They're all very successful at Seville, but they don't really kick on. The only one that you could argue really kicked on would probably be Sampoli, but that was with Chile, international level, not with Argentina. You know, Unai Emery won things at PSG, but it was Thomas Tuchel that took them to the next level. You know, Wande Ramos ended up you know, winning something at Spurs, ended up managing Real Madrid, but just not for very long and not didn't really stamp his authority, didn't kick on to the next level. And, you know, they're successful Europa League history. They've not been able to do that so much in the Champions League, not able to compete domestically. But they have a method 
that is you know, resilient. This has been going on since the early 2000s. This is 15 years of consistent success at high-end European football. You know, with Atalanta, it's the use of a scouting network, use of unheralded players, you know, an experienced manager in Gasparini. It's playing you know, beautiful attacking football that is belying a, a previously modest history. With Leipzig, it's this top-down structure. You know, multiple clubs you know, in Salzburg and in New York. You know, huge scouting network across the globe. You know, developers, younger players and managers. You know, getting Nagelsmann, that was a fantastic move. But having someone like a Hassan Hutter as well. But also the... But having someone like Ralph Randnick as the overall head of Red Bull football. And how that kind of level of expertise. And you know, having a fast-paced and pressing, you know, pressing game that matches the young players that they picked up from across the globe and from who developed at home in Germany. <laughs> now it's interesting to note that you know you don't see Real and Barca on this list. But in the same way that the only way that PSG have been successful is to take maybe some more tier 2 ideas and processes. So there is still room for these outfits to succeed. You know, the middle class is still consistently getting results on a year by year basis. You know, one of the interesting ones, I mean, I, I didn't mention Ajax, which I'm going to mention now, really, to say, you know, what if any difference is there between sort of Ajax and Leon? Ajax got to the semi-finals last year, the Champions League, nearly got through to the final. And I suppose there's more room for Ajax to succeed at domestic level. There's no PSG behemoth. And there's already a longer success of history of success at youth level. So you have the seventies, you know, the team, you know, that birthed, you know, a decent percentage of the, you know, total football Dutch team that was so successful at international level, three European cups. You had the ninety-five generation, you know, winning the Champions League under Louis van Gaal, and the fact that they've been able to utilize people like Van der Sar, Overmars as director of football, to to maybe reenact it. Mm. The fact they were able to, you know, get these complementary pieces, you know, Daily Blind and Dusan Tadic, all who have prior experience in the league. And the fact they'd avoided a Scotland kind of greenhouse effect. In Scotland, you were guaranteed, you know, if you're Rangers Celtic, you're guaranteed European football and you're guaranteed these really high-end games, you know, the old firm. But everything else, it's... You know, there's too much dominance in Scotland, and there's too much heat that's actually just kept within the greenhouse, which means when you leave the greenhouse, yeah, you, you can get success, you can grow things in it, but you can't grow things outside of the greenhouse, which is my view in Scotland. You know, with the Dutch league, you have final, PSV, even Vitesse, because of their link-up with Chelsea, will always have some quality players floating around. You know, the point is is that, yeah, it's not as deep as the league as France, but there's enough, con you know, enough competition within it so that it doesn't completely ossify your squad you know you can compare really you know the fact that Overmars was able to get these complementary pieces Blind and Tadic for not huge amounts of money where if you compare to sort of Janino and Pernambucano's high price signings broadly they didn't work and that's why they didn't qualify for Europe this season because you had a poor manager with choice in Silvino you had to sack him yeah, you could argue it's maybe harder to pick up complementary players in, in France. But the point is, is that with 
you know, Aulus in picking Janino Pernambucano was an attempt to create a philosophy, bringing people back in within the Leon family. And yeah, Leon are a much bigger club in terms of infrastructure and budget. And I think you could probably make the, the argument that they're both successful outfits at identifying talent. I think where the success of Ajax is, is that their their traditions and their ideology and everything sort of links up in a very sort of holistic manner, which I think makes it far easier for them to have a style of football and some success. So I think it allows them to have greater success much quicker, so when they were a Europa League finalist a few years ago. And because it's a less demanding league, it gives you more scope to be successful in Europe, whereby France is a far more competitive league. Whereby I think Lyon, what they're very good at is scouting and resales. In other words, take you know, Tungo and Dembele, have one greater season at Lyon. They were able to sell him for 60 million, having really signed him for about 4 million euros. You know, even sort of with Moussa Dembele and Memphis Depay, they were kind of, they were investments. It was buying low at you know, pretty much intermediate, you know, Price. In other words, the question mark over Moussa Dembele, he'd had a little bit of success for Fulham, showed some promise in the championship, gone out to Celtic, which is you know a bit of a Mickey Mouse league, scored a load of goals, but lots of strikers have scored lots of goals in Scotland. And then the idea is you then pump up their value using League One. It's a real pump and dump, and then you sell them for huge amounts of money. You would Depay, he'd been you know highly rated, signed, yeah, did well at the World Cup, signed for Man United flamed out and now they've you know sort of turned him to a more central attacking player and the potential is if they were going to sell him they'd make more than their money back for him and so the I suppose the question mark is is that is there more scope for Leon to maintain the players? I think the thing is with Ajax is that yeah you will get strip mined so the best players so Delict, Frankie Dijon they went immediately the second they got knocked out of the Champions League. you know. But they've been able to keep Tagliafico, Van der Beek, Onana for another season. Because I think there's always that question mark over when someone does well in Holland. Is, is it quite strong enough a league to put in 50, 60 million euros? Is, do they need another step up? Whereby I think with Lyon, the problem is, is that once you do well in France suddenly you have Italy, Spain and England and Germany all going after your players the second that they show you know, some degree of talent. So I think the argument is is that when Ajax get it right because of their traditions and their philosophy and their ideology with football, you can have great levels of success. You can get to a Champions League semi-final, you can get to a Europa League final with Leon because and they're trying to really in many ways match the Ajax philosophy it's not quite as fluent and they don't have as much time to develop a team and it's that much harder trying to you know be competitive against PSG than it is if you're Ajax and you're trying to compete against PSV I think one of the interesting things about Ajax's recent success is that they kind of went back to 
and this was Dutch football as a whole because of the struggles of the Dutch national team, was really focusing more on sort of local scouting. So in other words, the previous successful Ajax team under um, you know, Frank de Boer, they'd had Eriksen, who was Danish, had gone through the Ajax youth system. You had Toby Adevereld, Jan Vertonghen, again, went through the, you know, part of the Ajax, you know, as young, joined Ajax as younger players and were really, you know, sort of moulded there. But they're Belgian, whereby this generation, Van der Beek, Frankie de Jong, Matthias de Ligt, were all local. Yeah, they did pick up the odd player. You know, they got Anana from Barcelona after. I believe it's because he did a prank. And apparently Barcelona, at youth level, don't have any sense of humour about pranks. He got released and then picked up by Ajax. So even these two examples show you that these type of teams... There are ways and means that you can have success in Europe. It may not be long-term success, but there's definitely building blocks there. And there is a there is a roadmap for these type of teams to succeed and then come back. This is the second time that Lyon have got to a Champions League semi-final. You know, with their stadium, with their youth development, there is a clear and their process of, of signing young players. There is a methodology that they could do that again. You know, Tottenham are trying to rebuild, you know, under Jose. But, you know, they're not doing the classic thing that a Jose team does. They haven't bought a load of highly experienced, high-priced, high-profile players. And I think the point is, is that what we're getting at is, is that I think middle-class teams are better able to deal with mistake than upper-class teams. If you, if you take this year's Champions League, you've got Guardiola and Man City. And I think Man City are really fatally wedded to a manager who can no longer deliver in Europe or really in the transfer market. You look at the money they spent on fullbacks, Cancelo, Mendy, Danilo. You, know, you look at the, the Bravo signing, the John Stone signing. You know, you look at the, all the times they've been knocked out, it's been half-assed over-management by Guardiola. Leon are an upper mid-table French team. Yes, they have talent. They're not, you know, they're not an easy out. But the point is, he changed the team. He the formation for a one-off game. What Leon were terrified about is the Man City that they had seen most of the year from an attacking sense. You know, what do you do about De Bruyne? What do you do about the pace of Sterling? You know, Jesus, how do you? But then suddenly, if you take away that, if you then decide, okay, lads, we're going to play three defensive centre midfielders, we're going to match their formation, well, what were Leon going to do? They were going to have a crack at it. You know, the point was is that he was so worried about Leon's strengths, he didn't work out the fact that really all he needed to do was pick his usual outfit, you know, maybe focus a bit on, you know, trying to get the defence a bit tighter, but really, on a one-off game, Man City should have, you know, dealt with Leon. If you take last year against you know the season before against Spurs, it was poor tactics in the first leg. It was too timid. You know why? You know if you ask me as a Spurs fan who was at that game, it was fantastic that they didn't they brought on you know Kevin De Bruyne in the eighty eighth minute. It was fantastic at that point. The team had already held out. They were one nil up. You know, what was Kevin De Bruyne really going to do in four, five, six minutes when you, at this point Tottenham were already playing eleven men behind the ball? To, you know. There was no real space. 
you know, and he was unable and unwilling to use subs to change the first leg. Okay, fine, we'll just lose 1-0. It was almost as if he was so terrified that somehow the new stadium would have the old White Hot Lane atmosphere and that they'd lose 3 or 4-0. Which was ridiculous because at that point it was pretty obvious that this Spurs team was running on empty. They were, yeah, there was the injury to Kane. By the end of the, the, the second leg, you, know, you, you, you had a situation where, you know, Wanyama, whose knees are done at top-level football. You know, you had Philander Lorente on. It was really, um, you know, Danny Rose. It was really a ragtag. You had a half-fit kit, you know, half-fit... A half-fit Kieran Trippier. It was really a ragtag bunch of players that finished that game. But the funny thing is, is that the only realistic way that Spurs had of winning that tie was hitting teams on the break and the set pieces. And yet, he put a team with Fernandinho as centre-half. And you're thinking, well, there's no Kane, there's no Lorente. It's Lucas Moura and Son. And yet they played a high line. It was just... And yeah, the change formation against Liverpool the year before and annihilated and out of the time in the first 13 minutes. It was unwilling to make the adjustments against Monaco in the second leg. And I've always said, I've said this in the previous podcast, I just don't think he wanted to win with that outfit. You know, because it was, you know, a little, again, not quite ragtag, but you, you had Zabaletti, you had Gail Clichy. It was merely a little bit of a, a sort of mix and match team. And I don't think he wanted to win with that team. He wanted to, you know, effectively say, look, we're either going to go all out attack so that if it fails, great, in the summer, I can then you know, make all the signings I need to make. It's like, even if you take Rodri, is he the answer as defensive midfielder? Yes, you have that sort of fig leaf of the one-year athletic on to Simeone, but he's not really a full-on dominating defensive midfielder. You know, are the City strong in midfield defensively? No. Are they at the back? Not really. You know, they didn't replace Vincent Company. You know, in other words, Rodri really is another kind of identikit Pep centre midfielder. You know, he passes a lot. Yeah, he can tackle. He's, you know, an intelligent footballer. But he's not really the answer. And, you know, they weren't able to trust him, really, to be the defensive pivot against Leon. And the point is, is that any other manager would have been fired if you'd had that level of record. The amount of money and expectation he brought to Man City, and they have yet to win a, a quarter-final of a Champions League against not exactly high-class Oppo. Yeah, Monaco has some talent. But, you know, Lyon, Spurs, yeah, the Liverpool team was good, but again, you were brought in to specifically compete against your Liverpools, your top-level outfits. And the point is, I think it's more marketing and ideological standpoint than footballing reasons why they're keeping him there. And I think you can make the argument that really... It's a kind of similar thing with, you know, sort of Juve and Ronaldo. It was a narrative, it's... The chosen one, and it will lead to a social media explosion and expand the brand of Juventus globally outside of you know the dominating position it already has in Italy. And the real question is: is the key point is <clears throat> has Cristiano Ronaldo improved Juventus in a meaningful way? 
They've not progressed in Europe. They're no longer the most fluent team in Italy, and the competition has you know caught up. Now, could that money have been spent better? At the risk, though, that the brand lacking worldwide engagement would have been damaged if they'd signed a decent younger striker who, in three or four years, could you know, hit top level world class status. You know, the same thing that happened at Barcelona, the need for a high-profile player in Griezmann. But was really Griezmann the answer? Well, no, it didn't really fit in with what they were, you know, with what Messi. If you were going to keep Messi, Griezmann wasn't really the answer. But in the end, they were like, well, we need some high-profile player, and Griezmann was the easiest choice they had at that exact moment. And the point is, it's you know, upper-class teams seem to be desperately seeking fan engagement through emotional legacy signings. You know, you take Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Is Pochettino a better manager than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Yeah, probably. But the point is is that Man United fans love the idea of Ole bringing back the glory days, despite the fact that his track record and you know, the problems they've had you know, tactically in some of the big games, you know, take the Sevilla game, where they were really outthought by a, a weaker outfit. And then you've got the situation with... Juventus signing Pirlo. I mean, Pirlo in his autobiography says, I don't want to be a coach, I'm not interested in that. And yet, here he is, having no experience. He'd only literally a few days before been made the you know, youth team coach, who's now suddenly inexperienced, but heading up an outfit that has a huge wage bill, that is now expected not only to you know do 10 in a row against in Italy, to then try and compete in the Champions League with a rookie manager. And the point is is that one of the interesting elements is is that Juventus's strategy, because now they've got a bloated squad, they're going to have to have this rebuild with an inexperienced manager, is that they were trying to do two things at once. They needed to be the next great Juventus team while stockpiling experience for one last run simultaneously. Well, how does that work? The point is, you hire Sari, who's a system manager who really needs more than one year to, I suppose, input his ideas and philosophy into the outfit, but then you sacked him because you had one poor result in Europe, which could have gone either way. The point is is that you've suddenly you had Kadira on huge money. You had you know, Cristiano Ronaldo brought in on huge money. Gonzalo Higuain, who was already in the decline phase by the time you picked him up. You then had, you know, Aaron Ramsey was a bit of a strange signing. Because at one point they're like, okay, we're not going to spend a huge amount of money on transfers, but we'll then use our reputation and get, you know, interesting free agent signings. So they did that with, you know, Rabiot, they did that with Emery Khan, with Kadira, and now Ramsey. And yet, did they have a role for Ramsey that was likely for him to succeed? No. So suddenly you've got to get rid of all of these players on huge money, during an economic crisis when people aren't willing to take on idiotly large amounts of money. You know, is Poch a better manager than Pirlo? Yes, but I think the point is is that Pirlo is a marketing tool because everyone, oh yeah, Pirlo, he had the spell out in America, you know, he's got the looks, he's got the name brand recognition, but is it likely to succeed? Much in the same way, you know, with Lampard at Chelsea. He was a cheap option and a way of you know, you, he was almost like a sort of... The transfer ban was a Trojan horse for bringing in Frank Lampard as a way of saying, look, we understand that you hated Sari because Sari didn't really use any kind of political capital to, you know, 
endear himself to the fans. And actually, we've got this transfer ban, so you know, certain man, certain certain top level managers won't want to really pick up, pick that job up. So you're away that basically if you fail, no worries, we can get rid of you. You're pretty cheap, and you can you know you'll you'll give us brownie points with the with the fans. And the point is, is that a lot of this to me seems to be sort of poor ownership. So in other words, you've had. Barcelona with a transfer ban, you've had Real had a similar problem, Chelsea have had this problem. The thing is, it's not that middle class teams don't make mistakes. I mean, you know, Spurs had to sack Pochettino, they've had failures in the past with director of football. You know, Leicester made a huge mistake, you know, <clears throat> getting Puel to be the manager. And, you know, but the point is, is that they're able to, you know, even there were some issues with, you know, there's a bit of a civil war at Ajax a few years ago which then led to, you know, Overmars and Van der Sar coming in and then really trying to go back to basics. But the point is, is that they will make mistakes, but then they will then, you know, it's a bit like Leon's mistakes in the transfer window. The, the, the team that actually got them through to the Champions League semi-final was based on the, the youth team that they've got, the scouting operation, the younger players they've picked up, not the high-profile players that they spent quite a bit of money on in an attempt to supplant PSG. So if they you know, stop making those transfers and focus on what they're good at and improving the you know, philosophy and the organisational structure, they've gone and they they have an opportunity to compete with PSG. They have an opportunity because at the moment you have lots of you know you have Barcelona in chaos. You that you have a situation where Real Madrid are ageing. You know. You have a situation, even you know, at the start, you know, first third of this season, Bayern Munich had, you know, were a team, theoretically speaking, in crisis. You have Juventus, who are you know going through huge amounts of change and taking, you know, quite frankly, risks. And okay, the Lampard thing has worked out relatively well for Chelsea, but there are still question marks, you know, over you know, with the pressure he's going to be under this year with this huge amount of money they spent. You have a lot of top teams with. Frankly, inexperienced and underqualified managers, but they are doing that because you know, if Chelsea, they spent a huge amount of money on Kepa, they'd spent some huge amount of money on Jorginho, and by the time they'd actually reached the stage of picking a manager, Lampard, because he only had a cheap contract at Derby, even you know, Sari to an extent was relatively cheap for Juventus, and Pirlo is going to be even cheaper, and a situation where you know, Ronald Koeman at Barcelona, you know, this is a manager that got sacked by Everton. This isn't, you can imagine, you don't imagine going from being sacked by Everton to ending up being Barcelona manager. I think with a lot of, you know, if you look at the way how Leicester are run, Spurs, Lyon, Ajax, it, the point is, is that we all, you know, I think Daniel Leaves probably one of the better ones at realising that you do need to have a global brand, you need to be trying to expand that. And and you need a bit of cunning. So if you take Tottenham with the Amazon All or Nothing season that's coming out tomorrow, and you've got the Jose link up, that is ways and means of expanding people's interest in Tottenham globally. But the point is that's that's really to me a smokescreen. That's a way of getting ten million from Amazon. That's a way of you know expanding Tottenham's reach, which will get you money and more interest and more TV. And yet. Really, what you're actually doing on the side is that you're trying to swap 
Matt Doherty, 28, Irish, you know, a few years ago was playing in League One for Wolves, for Sergio Aurea, for pretty much, you know, you might make a small profit, let's say you sell, or you, you buy Doherty for 13.4 million euros, you then sell Aria for 15. You get Hoiberg in for 15 million, but you sell Kyle Walker pieces for 12. So in other words, you're really cost neutral. You know, you get Hart in on a free transfer. It's very much, you know, canny making the squad better without spending idiot amounts of money. You know, Leicester with replacing Maguire with Soyenki. You know, the Sander Burge signing at, you know, Sheffield United. Which was again a very canny sign. The point is, no, very, very few people knew that Sander Burge was a Norwegian defensive midfielder, and that not only did they get him there, so okay, you're fifteen million pounds worth of January signing, but you're not going to damage the team spirit, and actually, we're going to make you better because you've been used generally as a quite defensive player. We think you have more elements of box to box, and yet he scored a couple of goals. But it's low profile, but it's an evolutionary improving signing. You know, the rise of Wolves, Leicester and Sheffield United hints that clubs focusing solely on the football side and treat it as a resorts-based business will have a nimbleness in a new economic reality that the giants who need for a narrative and content directly impacts on the footballing side. In other words, the top sides are not making great football decisions. They're making social media decisions. They're making what will enhance the brand, what will get us views, what will get us likes, what will get us retweets. You know, what does Man City, the football team, require? To me, I think they would they need a new manager. So, you know, you have Pochettino available, you have Allegri available. You know, managers with a proven track record who can get you into the Champions League final, who, you know, Allegri has some limitations at Juventus that he would not have at Man City. Pochettino had lots of you know things holding him back at Spurs that would no longer be an issue at Man City. Both of those managers are free. Both of them are available right now. You know, and they both would improve the defence, but the political aims of the ownership group require them to retain Guardiola because that would would tempt Messi and his Tiger Woods-esque global gallery that he would bring. You know, Juventus hoped for a similar effect with Ronaldo. You know, the clubs best able to ride this out, who don't need to do this, are Liverpool and Bayern Munich. In other words, they have the systems, the playing staff, the history, and even Dortmund to a lesser extent, so they're not going to have to go through the painful rebuild that Real Madrid are going to have to, that you know, Barcelona are doing right now, that Juventus are partway through the process of doing so. And they're not, you know, and it's, it's you know, as I've said, it's interesting to note really that the way how PSG was successful was taking on some tier two middle class, you know, ideas and processes. Yes, the gap is growing, you know, with. You know, the age of stratification. But there is a window of opportunity for the middle class. You know, to really... You know, to really kick on from... Not just winning... You know, not just Sevilla winning the Europa League. And not just Spurs getting to the final. And not just Leon and Ajax getting to the semi-final. But for an actual middle class, second tier, three-star outfit. 
to win a Champions League. Thank you for listening.